Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you guys. Uh, I invite you to open your Bible to uh, Psalm 127. Psalm 127. If you're new to the Bible, that's like right in the center of your Bible, so you can just turn to the center and you might find it. Uh, we're taking a little break from our sermon series on the seven churches because it's family weekend and we want to talk a little bit about um, some family stuff. Um, for those of you who are new, my name is Chris. I am the children and family pastor here at Central. And yes, I am the one in the new awesome jacket. Okay, yes. I just thought I'd rip that band-aid off right away because some of you are like, why is Chris, you're going to be distracted the whole sermon because you're like, why is he wearing this jacket? My wife bought me a jacket for, for Christmas, so... It's from the Bay, okay? And yeah, because, you know, we're ritzy like that. So um, so there you go, you guys, okay? So just be quiet about it already, okay? All right, anyway. Um, my wife, uh, Jessica, those of you know um, her, she's the women's pastor here as well. And so it's pretty pretty weird and awesome for us to, uh, to serve together at the church. Um, my wife, Jessica, and I, before we ever got into ministry, uh, we... Um, we just kind of had, you know, every everyday kind of jobs. And, and in 2006, we actually got a chance to, you know, compile some money and go to Europe. And so uh, it was kind of a lifelong dream. We went to Europe and there's basically one reason to go to Europe. It's to see the architecture, to see all the buildings, all of the uh, cathedrals. We got to see the Roman Colosseum. Um, places like that. Those are the places that, that you want to see. And that's the reason that you go. And I think w when we got out there and we started seeing some of these amazing uh, structures, uh, we were just blown away, first of all, by the beauty of them. But also uh, something else really struck us. And that was like, wow, they built their buildings out of stuff that lasts, like bricks <laughs> and stone and marble and steel. Um, and, you know, we're thinking back, back home, like, what do we build our houses out of? Oh yeah, drywall and wood. Okay, so that's why, that's why these places have been around for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years in the case of the Colosseum. You might remember last April 15th, tragically, it was really sad, uh, the um, Notre Dame in Paris, France was on fire. And uh, it was a, a devastating fire. It's going to take till the year 2024 for them to restore uh, because of that fire. And yet, what amazed me after that, that fire happened, as horrible as that was to watch, uh, was that it still stood. There was much of it that was still left, you know, intact and, and really untouched. And contrast that with uh, a fire that happened uh, a couple blocks away from my house two summers ago. I saw this little like black smoke going up and I was like, oh, what's that? So I pulled over like, you know, any good Chilliwackian would do. I want to go watch this house fire. So <laughs> I'm watching this thing go up and it went up fast. And, the, you know, I watched the guys like put it out really fast, but it was destroyed. Like in a matter of minutes, it was completely destroyed. Um, they had to bulldoze everything and... And yet, they have already built a brand new house in its place. Um, so it goes up quick, but it comes down fast. You guys can cue the three little pig story, right? <laughs> right? What do you, what's your house built out of? Makes me think of a, a couple of building projects that are even more important for us. Um, and it makes me wonder about the stuff that these are made of. And the first building project I'm thinking of is our homes, our families. 
And the second one I'm thinking of is our church, our church family. What kind of stuff are we built out of? What kind of stuff is your family made out of? Is it made out of stuff like Notre Dame? That even when it's tested, it will stand? Or is it built like that house fire that I watched that was completely destroyed? Are you the first pig, (laughs) the second pig, or the last pig? As we look around and we see church leaders fall, it's in the news a lot these days. Families break apart. Churches close their doors. Children and teenagers are harmed in that process. What kind of stuff is going to keep our house standing strong to the end? Psalm 127 is is a psalm uh, that we believe Solomon wrote. Some some scholars believe that it was David who's writing it to Solomon. But we're going to go with Solomon because it actually says Solomon in your your Bible. So we're going to go with that today. Um, Solomon is going to, he's written this psalm. It's a wisdom psalm and we're going to look to it for wisdom. Uh, So let me read it to us. We're going to read the whole thing, verses 1 to 5. Verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the wisdom that this psalm has for us, for our families, for our church. And we ask that, Lord, you give us ears to hear Pray that anything that I say, Lord, that's not of you would would melt away and that what would be left, Father, is your word to us today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to unpack three three, uh, points uh, from this text. Uh, The first thing we're going to look at is how God builds. Second thing we're going to look at is how we're busy. And the third thing will be that children bless. So first, let's look at how God builds Uh, Psalm 127 is a wisdom psalm, so it's part of the wisdom literature tradition in in the scriptures, and therefore it is jam-packed with wisdom. Yeah, very good, very good, very good Sunday school class, okay? Um, Yeah, and knowledge, and and so the words and the meaning that uh, this literature carries is so rich. It doesn't instruct us by commandment or story. It's more of a poetic reflection, and it appeals to our common sense. Zach Eswine says this about wisdom literature. He says, wisdom speech addresses the stuff of life. It is earthy, human, and knowledgeable about the varying strata of reality. Like that. That's a good line. As such, in many ways, it's pretty straightforward. But on the other hand, it's pregnant with meaning. The Hebrew word for house, I want to just unpack that for a little bit here. Uh, He uses the word house here, unless the Lord builds the house. So what does he mean by house? Well, I think he means at least three things. And I think they're all part of this whole meaning. And the first meaning is that of the temple in Jerusalem. 
back when this psalm would have been written. So the temple in Jerusalem uh, was often referred to as God's house in the Old Testament. Uh, when Solomon was building it, he referred to it that way. Also, this psalm, Psalm 127, is part of a section in the book of Psalms. So um, there's a section in the book of Psalms called the Song of Ascents. So Psalm 120 to 134 are all songs of ascents. And what it is, is that section of Psalms, they were crafted and designed for God's people to sing them, uh, use them for praise, for lament, for reflection, like this one, as they ascended up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The reference to a city as well in this psalm, as the Lord watches over the city, it it's, has the city of Jerusalem in mind as, as we're looking through that. So this idea of temple as God's house, that's one thing. And, and what that basically means for us today is it's the building project at the center of the community of faith. So think about that ministry, maybe we can think of it that way. House also means, a second meaning, is that it means God's people, not just the brick and mortar building, but that it actually refers to God's people. Uh, Hebrews 3, I want to show you this text, uh, verses 1 to 4. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Question, did Moses, was the, was the temple built during Moses' day? No. The tabernacle was built, but it was never referred to as God's house. But here it's saying that Moses was faithful in all God's house. And it's talking about God's family. House means the family of God in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament, we have texts that point us to the fact that the church is that family today. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 to 15. Here's what Paul says to uh, this young pastor, Timothy. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? So now he's using temple language for the church. That God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So God cares about you. As the church, he wants to protect you. A third meaning of house is it refers to our individual families. And we see this inside the psalm itself. The word for children in this psalm, other translations have it as sons. It's probably more accurate. So sons or children are a heritage from the Lord. The word, the Hebrew word for sons or children is actually linguistically connected to the same word for house. And so Solomon is trying to show us that he has the family in mind. And of course, he goes into family in verses 3 to 5. So I think that all three of these meanings are here. They overlap. And this is what wisdom literature does. Is it, you're not just supposed to take one of those. You're supposed to see all of this richness of meaning and apply it in all of these different contexts. Um, we can apply this to our church. We can apply this to our families. We can apply this 
to the ministry that God calls us to do out in the world. So what's Solomon getting at? He's reflecting on the fact that our families and the family of God and the projects that the family of God pursue, that we must remember as we do those things, that God's blessing, his guidance, and his empowerment must be there or else it is vain. It's vain. The word he uses for vain is another uh, word he uses in another place in Ecclesiastes, and it literally means smoke, sometimes translated meaningless, but that's not probably the main uh, meaning of the word. It literally means smoke. And smoke is something you can't grab. It's elusive. It escapes us. Without God, our efforts will go nowhere, is what he's saying. They will amount to nothing. Solomon reminds us that God must build our home or else it is smoke. It is sinking sand, to borrow the language of Jesus. It's a road that leads nowhere. So if that kind of hits you a bit, you might be wondering, okay, how do I make sure my family, our church, the things that God's called me to do are not going to end up that way? How can I be sure that I'm building with the right stuff? How can I be sure God is building my home? Well, I want to give you a couple things to think about. Number one, this means that Christ must be the foundation of your home or your house. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10 to 11. Here's what Paul says again to this church. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. He's referring to Apollos, who's now watering the work that Paul planted in this church. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So what this means is the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, must be at the foundation of our lives. If you're a Christian parent or a grandparent, the question for you at the end of the day is, is Christ at the foundation of your family? I remember in the Old Testament, family wasn't just the nuclear family, it was the whole extended family. So this applies to you if you're a grandparent or uncle or aunt or whoever. You're all part of families. Is your family built on this foundation? Is your home built on the solid rock of the good news of Christ or the sinking sands of something else? I'll give you an example. Um, in your home, do your kids only know the law or do they also know grace? Do they know mercy and forgiveness too? See, law is good. It teaches our kids what is right and wrong. It teaches what God expects. It teaches how the world works. But as Christians, we also understand that the law cannot change our kids. So if all we throw at them is like rules and law, and hey, you did that again, I told you not to, you know that's wrong. That will only get so far. That can't change our kids' hearts. And if you're ministering to somebody else and you're just giving law, that won't change them. Only the gospel, only the grace of Christ can change them. I remember a couple of years ago, I was getting, uh, me and my son were having, we're getting frustrated at each other. He was being disobedient and rebellious and, and I was getting angry and I, I yelled at him and, and he went to his room 
And then I realized, oh man, I, I didn't handle that well. And of course, you know, there's that part of me that's like, uh, I shouldn't admit that to him. I'll, I'll just be strong and I'll be dad, right? But I, I, you know, God was convicting me about it. I knew I had to go in there. I had no idea how to solve this solution, this, this friction between us. And so I, I went in and I just said, hey, son, what I did was wrong. I should not have yelled at you. I'm so sorry. And I said, why don't we pray together? Because I don't know. I don't know what else to do. And so we prayed. And as we prayed, at the end of it, um, my son turned to me and he said, Dad, I love that you're my dad. And so in this moment of like, I'm just failing as a parent, as we turn to the Lord together, all of a sudden the Lord turned it into this beautiful time that we connected. That's what God will do. That's what God will do. In your home, do your kids know that Jesus is present in your home? Is life centered around him? I always remember a friend of mine, Amy, she was from Texas and she had a big family. Everything's big in Texas, right? So my friend Amy had this big family and she would always be like telling us when we were at life group nights and stuff, she'd be telling us about, um, you know, her dad and how he'd lead their family and how much of a godly man he was. And, oh, you got to meet my dad and blah, blah, blah. And, we're, and then even her husband was like, yeah, you got to meet her dad. He's amazing. I was like, wow, I got to meet this guy. So I did get to meet him once. He was a really awesome guy. But I remember Amy describing to me her family and what it was like in their family growing up as, as their dad led and, and as their mom was there as well leading. Amy said this, she said that we always knew that Jesus was at the center of our family. We always knew he was there. Like it wasn't just dad leading. It wasn't just mom leading. It was Jesus. He was present in their home. That like your home. You see, to have the Lord build your house means that you stand on the finished work of Christ, not your accomplishments as a parent or as a minister. You rely on the presence of Christ to go about the work of ministry and parenting. Unless you're standing on that ground... And you're just doing things, if you're just doing things in your own effort, it's going to fail. If we stand on the solid rock of Jesus, knowing he's with us to the end of the age, that's building on his foundation. But here's a second thing I want to say, and that is we must use God's building materials. We must use God's building materials. Paul goes on in this passage and he talks about how, um, you know, you have this foundation of Christ. And then you build on that foundation, he says, with gold and silver and precious stones. And he's using this imagery of the temple again, being built by Solomon. And he says that you need to build out of the things that God prescribed it to be built out of. And then he mentions hay and straw. Well, the temple was never built out of hay and straw. And so what Paul's getting at here is he's like, look, you can start building, but are you going to use the things that God chose for his house? Or are you going to use the things that you chose? And what's going to happen is the day when, when Christ returns, like he'll test your work and he'll see what it's made out of, just like Notre Dame. And he'll see if it's built out of what Christ has commanded or if it's built on our family traditions or the cultural experts or whatever. So... I want to give you guys a few things, I think, in context that Paul is saying that we need to uh, build with as we build on that foundation of Christ. 
Number one will be humility. Humility. The first reason we don't want to rely on God and we try to build and do things in our own strength is because we think we are able to handle it on our own. It's a classic, like, man problem, right? Like, I don't want to ask for directions, right? I know the way, right? So you, you just don't ever pull over to us. We don't have to do that anymore, though, do we? We just have G, GPS or whatever. But remember those days? And, and wives would always be nudging their husbands, like, why don't you just ask for directions, right? And no man ever wanted to admit that he didn't know the way because we're able. But the antidote to this kind of able, our ability, our pride is, is humility. Humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. It means seeing yourself accurately, realizing you're not God. You're a limited human being. I remember a friend of mine, um, was going through some struggles a few years back and I was kind of new into ministry at the time. And, um, as he was struggling, I was like, Hey, I'll, I'll meet with you and we'll start meeting together and we'll work on some of this stuff. And I remember at the time I, I thought, man, like I'm going to help this guy with his problems. You know, nobody, nothing else in, is working. Nobody else can help him, but now he's got me in his life and I'm going to solve this thing. Okay, just wait, just wait and see what this guy looks like in a couple of months after he gets a load of my counsel. So we start meeting and have these big long talks and another meeting, another meeting, another meeting, another meeting. And he's showing up at the meetings now and he doesn't remember a thing we've heard that we've talked about from the previous meeting. And I'm getting so frustrated. I wasn't praying for him. I was just relying on my own strengths. Finally, I just gave up. I was like, I don't want to talk to him. And I, I ignored his calls. And I was like, I can't, I can't deal with this guy anymore. So Lord, you, you deal with him. And so a couple weeks go by, I don't hear from him at all. And, you know, I'm kind of wondering, I'm getting a little nervous about him because he's, he's not doing well. He's not in a good place. And so finally, about two, three weeks later, I, I chatted with him again I'm like, so, hey, how are you doing? He's like, great. Oh, oh okay. Well, I have, I've been praying for you a little bit. I know we haven't talked or anything. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been an awesome few weeks. <laughs> oh, okay. So me out of your life, you've had the best weeks uh, that you've had in a while. Okay, I see. Okay, I get it now. But I was praying, I, di I did begin to pray for him. And I think the Lord was answering those prayers. And he was reminding me in that moment, like, you can't do this, Chris. Like, God has to do it. I want to read you a quote from uh, Paul Tripp in his book, Parenting. He says, no child really wants to be parented by parents who think that they're able. Able parents tend to be proud and self-assured parents because they are proud of their ability. They act too quickly and with too much self-confidence. And because they do, they lack patience and understanding. Able parents tend to assume that their children should be able to. So they tend to fail to be tender when the weaknesses of their children get exposed. Able parents who pride themselves in keeping the law tend to give their children more law than grace and are quicker to judge than to understand. And able parents tend to want their children to be their trophies a public demonstration of their ability. It's hard to live with people who deny weakness because people who deny weakness tend not to be patient, loving, and understanding with people who are weak. 
Your inability is not the destruction of your parenting because God meets people who humbly admit their weaknesses and run to him for help. It's a good word. Are you an able parent? Do you have all the answers on parenting? You judge all the other parents around you? Or do you help those parents? Are you leaning on Jesus or do you have it all figured out? What if we were a church where we could lean on one another as parents instead of judge one another in our parenting practices? Wouldn't that be great? And I think many of you do do that. But let me give you another building material, prayer. If we humble ourselves before Jesus, it will lead to prayer. If we know that we're not able, but he is able and that he will do the work through us, we will pray. Pray will come much more naturally if we really believe that. And so look, um, prayer is super, super important because look, you can do all the great methods. You know, you can protect your kids from internet content by buying Disney Circle. And you should absolutely do that, by the way. It's a super great thing to do. You should absolutely be, be doing all the right strategies and, and thinking through all that stuff. But what I want to say is if there's no prayer, the heart of your child isn't necessarily being impacted by those safeguards. And if they still want to find that stuff, they will find a way around those safeguards. You can guarantee it. And so you, you have to pray for their hearts to be changed. You have to pray their heart wouldn't want those things. Pray for them because you can't do that work in the heart. As I was kind of thinking through this text over the last couple of weeks, I, I, I felt convicted, you know, that I haven't really been praying for my kids as much as I should be, that I've, I've been trying to do all the right things. You know, we've been trying to get them into the Bible, but they're, they're getting kind of tired of that and trying to have faith conversations and they don't want to hear that. And so I'm like, ah, right, prayer. So I've just been praying for them intentionally for each of them. And then a couple days later, my daughter comes up to me and she sits beside me and she has a Bible with, she has her Bible with her and she goes, daddy, can you read the Bible with me? And I was like, she's never done that. Just so you know, ever. Two days after I'm praying for her. A couple days later, we're walking through another book. My son, he's usually pretty checked out. <laughs> we're going through some questions about how do we love God? How do we love others? And he's like thoughtfully thinking it through. He's never done that. And then he articulated the gospel in a beautiful way. I was like, wow, you really know it. Prayer. It was all a result of prayer. Pray specifically for your kids. Pray boldly. Pray that God would do a work in them. He wants to do that work. Third thing that you can build with is scripture. Scripture. So maybe you've heard somebody say before, you know, like, hey, you know, my dad, he used to yell at us and we really respected him. So now it is okay for me to yell at my kids because I want to teach them about respect. But scripture says you should have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So look, yelling 
isn't a Jesus way to discipline. It's a way, but ultimately it's hay and straw. It's smoke. It's not going to last or it's going to do damage, in fact, because it's not according to scripture. And so as we build on the foundation of Christ, we, we humble ourselves before him. We lean on him in prayer and we listen to what his word says that we are to do in our homes, in our families, in our churches, in ministry. Now, here's the thing. All that sounds really great. And you're like, yes, that's what I'm going to do. But then you're going to walk out of here and there's a big barrier, okay? And Solomon's going to help us with that barrier. So if you look down at verse two, we're going to get into our next point here that we're busy. So here's what Solomon said. He said, it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. What is the standard answer when you ask somebody how their week was? It was busy. We're busy. Almost everybody answers that way now. We're busy. And look, we are all busy. We have things that are good in our lives that we're doing. It's not like that's a bad thing. But if the defining word of our lives is just busy, I think something is off. And if you feel inside of you this constant rushness and hurriedness or panic even, anxiety, something is off. Psalm 127 reflects on the reality that anxious toil and excessive busyness are marks of those who aren't relying on the Lord. Now, I get the excessive busyness from verse 2 here, or sorry, verse um, yeah, verse two, where he says, you stay, you get up early and you, you stay late. You know, you're stretching the hours. You might hear people say things like, oh man, I just wish there were more hours in the day. So I get everything done. But is that going to make you actually less anxious? It's just going to, it's more busyness. It's just more busy. That is not the answer. So God gives us sleep. Solomon says, he wants us to rest. Now in Solomon's day, that looked like, you know, the people there, they were, they had really tough labor, right? They were building walls, like actual, you know, building the walls of Jerusalem and there were actual enemies that could attack at any moment. And so you could easily justify just working all day long and stretching the hours and just go, go, go without adequate rest and sleep. Now our problem today is very different. I mean, some of you have backbreaking work that you still do, but a lot of us you know, we don't necessarily have that type of work, but we are still so busy. And, and I want to point out a couple ways that I think are making us super, super busy today that are just cultural. One of them is digital busyness. In our day, we are busy with our digital um, practices. We're trying to cram in uh, all this mental work through what we're looking at on screens all the time. You know, do you remember when you used to be bored in a lineup? Like you'd be sitting there waiting for line and you just had to wait there. And now you just, you do what? You pull your phone out and you fill up that moment with mental stuff. You're, oh, I can read this thing or cram this thing in or get that podcast or whatever. And you're just cramming in all this mental stuff and it's just making your mind work. Your mind isn't resting. And also those little moments used to be moments that we would pray but now we just 
fill it up. We fill it up with our digital practices. And it's hard. It's hard to, uh, to avoid, but it's one of the reasons that we're so busy. But if that doesn't apply to you, if you're not super engaged with digital things, this might apply to you. Overscheduling. Often many Christians are involved in lots of good things. And it's, it's hard to maintain a balance. But part of the reason we overschedule our families is because we're more driven by our fears and our anxieties than by Christ. Perhaps it's the thought that, oh, my kid's not going to make it to that level of soccer unless he starts, you know, at the little kickers program when he's three years old, right? That's how he's going to get the good start so that he can excel by the college years, right? So like we just, oh, we have to do the thing. We have to get him involved. We have to do it. And you just keep up on and on and you keep adding things into your life. Or perhaps you just want to give your kids the opportunity you didn't have. So you fill up your calendar with all this stuff. Or maybe you just like being busy. You don't know what you'd do if you weren't busy. We don't like being bored. We don't like silence. Maybe the Lord would start pointing things out in my heart that I don't really like. So I just kind of avoid it. Or maybe being busy just makes us feel like really important. If you're busy, you're somebody special. And so we just stay busy. And I think a cyclical effect kind of happens here, right? So if we, we struggle to trust God, so we work in our own strength, which makes us stay busier and more anxious. So we don't slow down long enough to pray and to read his word. And so we keep trusting self. And it, it goes along. And so at any point in that process, we need to break that cycle. One of the ways we can do that is by unhurrying ourselves. Dallas Willard once called hurry the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And he said that followers of Jesus and Jesus who is rarely, if ever in a hurry, must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from their lives. John Mark Comer says, hurry and busyness are connected to time and attention. And he says, quote, if you don't have time and you don't have the capacity to pay attention, you basically can't have a spiritual life at all. And I think he's right. Because we have a, a God gave us this book that we're supposed to read, right? We're supposed to spend time in prayer. And you can't do those things if you're always busy. Pete Scazzaro says, if you had one word to describe Jesus, what would it be? Loving, kind, compassionate, powerful, generous. It is true, many words might fit. And then he goes back to Dallas Willard again. He says, Dallas Willard, one of the most influential thinkers on spiritual formation in our day, offered his own word. And here's the word that Willard chose. Relaxed. When you are centered on God, Scazzaro continues, you are relaxed. Imagine yourself today leading and carrying your responsibilities out in a relaxed inner posture. It may be the best gift that you and I offer to those around us. So basically that Frankie goes to Hollywood song from the 1980s. You guys remember that song? Relax, don't do it. Remember that song? Those were the words of Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. That's a joke. Um, 
But yeah, he was relaxed. If you think of Jesus's life, he was, he was always really relaxed, right? People would come up to him with these emergencies. Like, we, we, there's no bread. Like, we've got to feed all these people. There's crowds of people. We, we better send them home, Jesus. And he's like, well, why don't you feed them? It's just kind of like a, a simple answer. He's not panicked. Why don't you just feed them? And then later he's in the boat and there's a storm. And again, his disciples are freaking out. We're going to die. And what's Jesus doing? He's asleep. He's asleep. What? Like, what are you doing, Jesus? He's so relaxed. Like he's just trusting in his heavenly father. I mean, you think about it. You're like, oh man, this doesn't work in an emergency. But you think about it in an emergency. What do they train people to do in emergencies? Not panic. Those are the people who get stuff done. So your inner life, like, are you relaxed? God's in control. But you're never going to get there if you can't slow down. Rest and sleep are gifts from God. They are also signs that we understand God's love. God's in control and he loves us so we can rest in him. We can sleep knowing he rules the world. We can slow down. We can slow down our family schedule. We can unplug digitally and we can relax into God. And then we might have time to read his word and pray and be humble before him. All right. So how's your anxiety level? How's your busyness level? Are you sleeping these days? Do a little assessment and see, man, if there's something off, like how do I get underneath this? How do I unhurry myself? What can I cut back on? And what can my family cut back on so we can be present with Jesus? We can have a spiritual life. Third point I want to make, or it's Solomon makes in this, in this Psalm. We're going to go down to verses three to five. We're going to talk about our children bless, children bless. Behold, Solomon says, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who has, who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. God not only gives us the gift of rest and sleep, he gives us the gift of children. And children are one of his greatest gifts. Happy, blessed are you if you have children. And as a church, guys, even if you don't have your own children, we have children that are part of our, our church family here. They are a heritage, literally an inheritance. They, it means they're a gracious gift from God. And the word reward um, that you see there in verse, um, verse 3, don't, don't hear that as they're, they're an earned thing. So if you're kind of a little more awesome than the rest of the other Christians, you know, God will bless you, right, with children. Actually, the Hebrew people, they kind of believe that. They kind of believe that those who had a bunch of kids were, were, you know, they had earned God's blessing. But you never earn God's blessing. In fact, verse 3, it's, a, it's what they call a synonymous parallelism. So it's basically the same line 1 and line 2 are saying the same thing in different words. So this understanding of a heritage or an inheritance, we know it's a gracious gift and we know the reward is supposed to be just like that. It's a gift. It's not something we earn. Children are a gracious gift from God. And in a surprise twist, he goes on and he talks about how 
you know, we think a lot about how we protect children, but he says, actually, your children are going to rise up and they're going to protect you. They're going to be like arrows. They're going to protect their, their parents, their fathers at the gate. And they will also like dispute legal matters at the gate of the city where business is done. And so if you invest in them well, man, they're going to be dangerous for Jesus one day. They are a blessing in our lives. You think about all through the Bible, how God blesses his people through a child. Think about the Israelites, right? When Pharaoh, who is he targeting? Who is he trying to wipe out? The little Hebrew babies. And who does God raise up to save them? Little baby Moses. A child, a blessing to rescue them. Later, they go into the promised land and, you know, things start to fall apart again during the time of the judges. And so as things are falling apart again, God sends again a rescuer. And who's he send? It's the best judge that they ever had, most faithful to a woman who was infertile, couldn't have kids, is crying out to the Lord to have a child. Her name's Hannah. And he blesses her with baby Samuel. And Samuel ushers in a whole new era with the kingdom, with David and all that. 400 years of silence from the end of the Old Testament. And all this stuff happens. We get to King Herod and the Roman oppression. And God sends his son, born as a little child in a manger in Bethlehem. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Children are a blessing but in our culture, we have kind of two poor views of children. One view, um, they're kind of, they kind of piggyback off each other, these, I think, a little bit. And they're sort of extremes. They're sort of polar opposites in one, one respect. But the first one is that we view them as an idol. And nobody would ever admit that. Like, nobody would say, yeah, my children are my idol. But we, we often will center our lives around them. We fall into um, just doing everything around their interests and, and catering to their every whim. You guys have heard of the helicopter parent, right? Who's kind of hovering <laughs> over their child all the time. Like, oh, and this isn't doing great things, by the way, for our kids. Anxiety levels in children are actually attributed to the fact that their parents are coddling them too much. They can't be our idol. That's so much of a burden. And that's actually the second way that we view children is we view them as a burden. Often because we've centered our lives around them, they become a heavy burden. We get enraged at them. We snap at them. We're constantly complaining about how difficult they are. We plan vacations. I just got to get away from the kids. And we're not enjoying them. We simply try to hyper control their every move and it's exhausting. And look, I know that for all of us, we go through our good moments and our bad moments with all this stuff, but this is the temptation is that we view them as a burden. But the biblical view is that children are not an idol to be worshiped or a burden to carry. They are a blessing. This is a truth we must remind ourselves of when we're tempted to think Otherwise, because it frees us to enjoy them and to love them and build them up the right way and to sharpen those arrows. Uh, two days ago, I was having my coffee. It was Valentine's Day. My daughter comes up to me 
She goes, Daddy, you should kiss mom. So I was like, well, guess what? Guess what, sweetie? I already did. And she's like, well, kiss her again because it's Valentine's Day. See, she's already guarding my marriage. Like she's protecting me already. It's fantastic. There is such a blessing. There's such a blessing. They say the funniest things. I can't remember them all because there's just too many. Um, but when we see them that way, it frees us to enjoy them and to parent them the way that God has called us to. I just want to talk about Jesus's love for kids for just a sec too. Like, I mean, when you look at Jesus in the gospels, there's so many stories of him interacting with children and you see that he would take them in his arms and he would bless them. And he would say some pretty provocative things to his disciples who didn't value them very much. Like, are you willing to serve this little child? Is what he'd say. Are you willing to receive them? Jesus loved kids. And Central, I know this is a church that loves kids. We have a full quiver here. We, we got a lot of kids. And I know some of you are here, they're like, man, I hate, we always talking about the kids and blah, blah, blah. It's like, we're not doing it to make them an idol but we are trying to receive them as a blessing. And so look, um, if you're part of this church, you're part of helping with that process of raising up these arrows so that they can be fired one day. So pray for our kids here at our church. Pray for the families that are here. Pray for one another. And don't rule out teaching in Sunday school. Don't rule that out. Yeah, preach it, preach it. I'll leave you guys with a quote from Dr. John Trainer. This quote is often uh, wrongly ascribed to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis did not say this. So you might see that on like some, you know, Instagram feeds. C.S. Lewis said, wasn't C.S. Lewis. It was this uh, child psychologist named John Trainer. He said this. He said, children are not a distraction from more important work. They are the most important work. I know there's lots of you here that work with children, not just here at this church, but out there in the community and schools and all kinds of places. God smiles down on you when you receive them as a blessing and you show them Christ's love. So central, um, let us build our house. Let, I pray that you would build your house on the gospel, that you would unhurry yourself, relax and sleep, Humble yourself before the Lord and spend time with him, hearing his word and praying. Remember that children are God's gift. They're a blessing. So let's enjoy God's good gifts this week. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, uh, we are so thankful for you, Lord, and your loving care for your people. God, thank you that you want to build our house strong, Lord. You want to build this church strong. You want to build the families that are here strong. And Lord, we also thank you for redemption that those of us, Lord, who know we've maybe built poorly, God, in you, there's always redemption. There's always restoration. But thank you, Lord, that we can rebuild. Pray that, Lord Jesus, you would give us wisdom and how to do that. Would you... Help us to unhurry ourselves this week so we can spend time with you 
and enjoy our kids. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.